As I've gotten older and smarter, I would much rather have enough to be able to do the things I want to do, which is hang out with my family and my friends and have a business that I can run from pretty much anywhere. Welcome to Truly Passive Income. I'm Neil Henderson. And I'm Clint Harris. Ed Matthews, at long last, we have really tried to make this interview happen. We had some technical difficulties before. We had some scheduling issues. And now we've got Clint here. I didn't think Clint was going to be here because he's got a sick kid at home. But here he is. Lucky us. But we're pleased to have you here. So let's get started with what's your story with real estate? Give us the high level view of what your journey into real estate was. The old admiral was at Stockbridge. You know, who am I and why am I here? Right? Yep. Exactly. I do that all the time. Me too. You get to be my age, you walk in a room and go, I know I came in here with a purpose, but I cannot for the life of me remember why, right? And then your spouse or partner starts to figure out, okay, they see the look in your eye. But anyway, Ed Matthews with Clark Street Capital. I spent about 24, almost 25 years flying all over the world, slinging software and services for teeny tiny and medium-sized Silicon Valley companies, and most of them you've never heard of. And I've been investing in real estate since 2011. I did it as a side hustle for the first seven or so years. And then I was fortunate enough that portfolio surpassed what I was making in my day job. And I got to reintroduce myself to my two little girls and my wife. And turns out after all that time on the road, they still liked me and I was welcome. So I got to hang out and that was a good thing. And so I've been full-time here at Clark Street since it was actually six years ago last week. And you spent about 20 years in Silicon Valley, that's correct? It felt like longer, but yes, it was about 24 years, give or take. I'm just curious. So your story is, there's a little bit of overlap with the way that mine worked is that long career, I was in medical for 16 years, built a portfolio on the side. And eventually those numbers kind of made the decision for me and I made the jump. But I started investing a few years after you did. But back then, there was very limited ways to network and learn and educate. I was renting CDs and audiobooks from the library, and there were not many of them trying to learn that way. And I would say the first nine to 10 years of my real estate investing, I did it completely wrong. And I was just relying on the people around me. And in retrospect, they were terrible at what they were doing. When you got started that long ago, how did you educate yourself? If you got a Silicon Valley background, it's not like maybe you grew up in a real estate household. I don't know, but you did something successfully to get to the point where that was able to overtake what you were making with your career. What was that like in those early days for you? So back in the olden days, we had these things called books. And so I read Rich Dad, Poor Dad in 2008. And it took me, fundamentally changed the way I looked at the world, basically, certainly my career. And it took me three years to get the courage to pull the trigger on that first deal. And after that, once I got that first deal done, it was like, ooh, that actually wasn't that hard. And so we would flip a couple houses, buy, take the capital from those, buy a multi, flip a couple more, buy a multi and rinse and repeat for the better part of just about seven years. So the way I learned was, well, Robert's book got me cooking. I bought Carlton Sheets, if you've ever heard of him, I bought his system back. Oh, that was you know one of those 2 a.m. infomercials that I bought. Ron Legrand was someone that I paid quite a bit of attention to. Robert Allen was someone I paid attention to. Nothing down in the 2000s. And I took a little bit from each one of those that seemed to make sense to me and cobbled together a side hustle that, you know, frankly, it really wasn't a business in that if I stopped, the business stopped. So one of the things that I learned very quickly, I decide, okay, I'm leaving corporate America and a bunch of my 
colleagues and friends from that world were like, Hey, we want to invest with you. And I had to tell them, I said, look, you know, it's basically a side hustle and I don't have business systems. I don't have processes. I don't have technologies to keep this going if I want to take a day off. Right. And so, you know, I told them, I said, let me go break stuff. Let me go screw stuff up because I've already screwed up a bunch of stuff and I already know how to fix that. And over the course of the first, I don't know, year, year and a half, I broke a lot of stuff. And then I'd put my consulting hat back on and say, okay, what's stressing me out? What's not working? What's ticking me off? And slowly but surely, we would create checklists and processes and procedures for here's the due diligence process that we go through when we buy a property. Here's how we onboard the building. Here's how we onboard the residents. Here's how we do this. Here's how we do that. And got to the point where it was a business and it could survive with me taking a Saturday off. And lo and behold, that was an inflection point for us because once we had those systems in place, it freed me up both physically and time-wise, but also mentally to be able to think bigger and start to run the business as opposed to be the business. What was the size and makeup of your real estate portfolio once you started to build those systems and processes? So when I left DocuSign, which was my last job in corporate America, I probably had 145 units and it was to varying degrees of success, right? And it was a lot of small buildings, right? So it was a lot of three families, four families, five families. I think the biggest one I owned at that point was a six family here in Connecticut. What I did immediately was I started to sell those off and buy bigger buildings. And by bigger, I mean eights, tens, twelves. So I was basically selling a four family and buying an eight, selling a six, buying a 12. And that process was the last you know, four or five years. So I've always bumped around 140 to about 200 units in different mixes. And actually now, today, I own the fewest units I've owned ever. Certainly before I left corporate America, I own about 41 units right now because I'm selling everything to go much larger. And so we've basically sold off a pretty sizable portfolio, 80 or so units up in Vermont, as well as probably another 55 units here in Connecticut with the intention of buying much larger properties down South, probably in North Carolina. So I'm now selling and hunting simultaneously. So I'm selling off all these properties and I'm hunting for 50 units plus down in the Carolinas. Man, there's so much overlap here. I'm kind of going through something very similar. I built up a small portfolio of single family homes, very slow way to get ahead, transitioned and started buying multifamily properties at the beach where we live and converting them to Airbnb properties. So had a nice value add there. And I'm on the verge now of that helped me reach a level of financial freedom. But what it did not give me is time or location independence. That's a very laborious strategy. And as a young man, I was focused on cash flow, right? I want to replace my income, but I did that at the detriment of time and location independence. And so I am now at the point to where I am unpacking, or I'm having this discussion daily at this point. I've talked to Neil about it the last couple of days about unpacking some of these properties slowly to move into larger properties. Neil and I, with our group, we specifically focus on buying old Kmarts and grocery stores and converting them to self-storage. So that's 700 units, no tenants that live there. It's basically automated. The reason I'm doing that is even though I can get up probably a higher percentage return on my investment with an Airbnb, it's got eight to 10 tenants every month. It's very labor intensive. I'm getting to the point now that the time is worth more than anything else. And I'm willing to take a little bit of a lower return if it's more passive in the long run. Right. Couldn't agree more. I have a feeling, yeah, 
feeling you're about to tell me the same thing. So talk to me about what you're unpacking, the smaller units, and why are you going bigger? Is it because you're chasing a bigger return or is it because what I usually suspect is a lot of times the bigger buildings are easier to manage because you can afford to have management there? Right. So it's what they call in the software business brain damage, right? So fewer buildings causes less brain damage in my world, in my head. Instead of managing 20 buildings of an average of five units each, I'm now going to manage two buildings with the same amount or more units. And so I think the kind of line is probably about 75 or 80 units. When you have an 80 unit building, you can have a superintendent You can have somebody that works at least part-time on lease-ups. You can have a handyman who's, you know, at least half-time, in a lot of cases, full-time, as well as captive plumber, electrician, HVAC folks that all they do is they work for you. And I'm managing one entity as opposed to 20. And so a year ago, had we met, I would have talked to you about the 20 different buildings I have and the 20 different handymen that I had and the 20 different plumbers and electricians and HVAC folks and whatever else, landscaping, snow removal, you name it. They were all different. There was some overlap for sure, but with each building, there was a team. And so I felt like I was herding cats and this whole play, it's a little stressful right now because I took my cash flow way down. And I'm sitting on you know capital right now that is burning a hole in my pocket. So we're finding stuff. But I think a year from now, I will probably own eight buildings of an average of 125 units each. And that's the goal. And that is going to be that. And we're going to manage the living daylights out of those. And I'm probably not going to acquire anything beyond that thousand units. We're just simply going to manage them, pay them down. And some I will sell with my partners. Some we will refinance and buy my partners out and I'll keep them. And some we'll just get rid of and put the cash in some other asset class. But time will tell. This is one of the things I love about podcasting. I'm not very good at it. Neil's great at it. But it allows us to talk to people from all over the world, all over the country that are, you're willing to sit here and give me, you know, 45 minutes to an hour of your condensed life experience and everything you're going through. And that's unbelievably valuable to me, especially. And it's so funny. One of the things that I see is that there's skill sets and then there's goals that you have. And I always kind of expected that your skill set and what you learn in terms of what needs to be done with the property is going to drastically change over time, but your goals are going to stay the same. And what I've tended to find is that a lot of the skills that you learn with single family homes and flipping properties to buy small multifamily property and the value add and forced appreciation you are creating in those small properties, it's the same thing you're just adding more zeros to it, right? Instead of four units, it's 40 units, or then it's 400 units. But the skill set is really the same. What gets better is you get better at dealing with people and consolidating. And instead of having 10 handymen, you're dealing with one. It's funny to me that the skills that you're learning early on translate if you're willing to scale that. But what does change are the goals. Because a lot of times the goals for me are usually maybe a little bit out of focus until you hit that level of financial freedom. And once you hit that, it's like, you know what, what I really want is time with my daughters, time with my spouse, availability to travel or be location independent. I want to be able to live in the Northeast and invest in the Southeast and not have to be, you know, working nights and weekends and things like that. So from the beginning, 
if you remember, like, what were some of the initial goals that you set for yourself? And maybe it was forced upon you because of, you know, making the jump from Silicon Valley, but like, what were some of the original goals and what were some of the ways that they changed for you? And what are some of the things that have remained constant? Yeah. So I've learned in the last 15, 20 years about the concept of enough. And so I don't need to be a billionaire. I don't even need to be a millionaire hundred times over. Here's what I want. I have a 21 year old who's a junior in college down in Philly. I think she's going to settle somewhere down in that area, somewhere between New York and Philly. My youngest is 16 years old, pretty darn good softball player and a pretty good student on top of it. And we're starting to think that she could play at a pretty high level in college. And she's looking at colleges in North Carolina, for instance. And so my thinking is that we'll have a little place in New York and a little place wherever my youngest lands and we'll fly between because here's the cool thing. And Clint, you touched on this earlier. I have time freedom, right? And that is the most valuable thing. Had you asked me about that in 2008, I would have told you I want 5,000 units and I want to own the world and there isn't an asset class I'm not going to buy. And I want, I want, I want, I want. As I've gotten older and I think smarter, I think that I would much rather have enough to be able to do the things I want to do, which is hang out with my family and my friends and have a business that I can run from pretty much anywhere. And the other part of it is basic. And this I had a long time ago. This was kind of the one key theme throughout. And that is my wife's a genetic freak. And I mean that respectfully. She comes from a family who lives to be high 90s, low 100s. All the women in her family live to be, you know, 104 years old. I can't explain it. My father-in-law used to say they don't know enough to lay down. And my wife is in phenomenal shape and, you know, she takes good care of herself. And I have no reason to believe she is the anomaly, right? She's probably going to be 105. Me, my people, we kind of pass on right around 85, 86 years old, like to a person. So that tells me that she's going to be here for 20 plus years beyond me. And I need to know that when I lay my head down the last time that she's going to be okay. She's my person, right? I mean, we have been together since we were 18 years old. She is my best friend. And much like she feels a responsibility to me, I feel a responsibility to her. And the way that kind of articulates itself in my role here is that my job is to put this business in place so that when I do go at 85, I know that she has the cash flow and the reserves and all that to take care of her as she gets into her 90s, late 90s, early 100s, and however far she goes. I hope she breaks a record. And for two reasons. One, she's my person and I want to make sure she's okay. But the other part of it is, I have a responsibility to my girls too, because if I don't do that, then there's the possibility that my wife, their mom becomes their financial responsibility. And that's not fair to them. And so I do it for all of them because I think it's the right thing to do. And like I said, I really want to know that she's going to be okay when I'm done. So that is a big part of this. And that's never changed. What has changed is I don't need to own 5,000 units. You know, I don't even need to own a thousand units. I had coffee with a good friend of mine right before this show. And he was saying, well, how many do you actually need? And I said, I need 250 to 300 fully paid off, throwing off cash flow, and I'm good, and I'm good forever. And when I go, then there's a little envelope that sits with my will inside of it. It'll tell my daughters, sell everything, right? Stepped up basis, enjoy the money. And I'm highly confident that I'm 54 now. So I got, as history indicates, about 30 years left of tread on the tires. And I fully expect to run every tread right off those tires between now and then, but 
the goal is that I'm focused on making sure that that is taken care of. And so, you know, my goal is a thousand units. And by the time we pay everything off, I'll probably own 250 to 300. And that'll be perfect. I'm going to butcher this quote, but it goes something like, we plant trees, the shade of which we will never sit under. Exactly. And a similar boat, Ed, I'm 54 as well, but my wife is almost 15 years younger than I, and I have a nine-year-old son. Odds are I'm going to pass away long before my wife does. And so there's the short-term goal of just building financial freedom for our family. And then there's the long-term goal of having my family set up after I'm gone. I love what you're saying there, which is the envelope just says, sell everything. You got to step up in basis, take the money and enjoy it. It's not new for me or for people on the show to have a lot of conversations about thinking about the end game and working backwards. Usually that of what you want your life to look like, what the finances look like, what your time or location independence or your freedom of purpose to look like. Frankly, I think it's an important conversation to think about both your lifespan and your health span. We've got so long on this earth and then we've got so long on this earth while we can still be active and do what we want to do. I think it's really important to set goals that fit within your health span. Outside of that, I think it's really important to look at lifespan and look at how it affects the people around you and work backwards from there. I think that's a very unselfish way to live and way to be. And I can certainly appreciate that. I've got a four-year-old and a 10-month-old. I think working backwards from that and thinking about your spouse and your people and everything else and understanding that this is all just stuff. It's important because it gives some freedom and it takes stress away in your life. But the reality is my wife and I talk about all the time is like, I would rather die with a stack of pictures of things that I did with people that I love and going to beautiful places than with things, especially Neil and I are in the storage world. And we see things that people store away that meant something to them that they can't let go of. By the time it gets moved out, it's deteriorated. It never means as much to the next people. And they could have burned it and bought it over three or four times by the time that it's set there. Don't get me wrong, it's our business model, but there's a good and a dark side to that as well. So it certainly made me a little bit of cynical about remembering that most of the things we're dealing in life really don't have any level of eternal significance or ways that they're gonna affect things for our family in the long run. So it's a tricky business to be in where we spend so much time thinking and talking about money but at the same time, if we're doing it right, that's a really small part of our existence. I love that that's an emphasis. I appreciate that. And I respect that too. You know, the thing is, is that you look back on things, right? And memories. And I've never regretted time I've spent someplace, whether I learned something or I met someone or it was just fun. Um, I have regretted some things that I've bought because you have it for back 2009. I won a contest for the company I was working for. And when you win the contest, the payoff was a Porsche and you got a Porsche for a year, right? And it was awesome. I loved every second of it. But when that 12th lease payment went out, I thought really hard about keeping the car. And then I remembered that it was the oil change was a $400 bill and that the insurance on it wasn't 20 bucks, 30 bucks, 100 bucks a month. It was 500 bucks a month because I had spent that year racking up let's see, one, two, three, four, maybe five speeding tickets. And I gladly paid every single one of them because they were worth it. But you know, when it came time to extend that lease, I didn't. I gave the car back and went and bought a pickup truck. And I was just as happy in the pickup truck. It didn't go quite as fast and it certainly didn't handle as well. 
but boy, I tried. But you know, along those same lines, I remember a similar time where we went to Key West and spent the best 10 days that I've ever spent with my family walking up and down the streets there and, you know, people watching and having fun and sitting at the restaurant that Jimmy Buffett wrote Margaritaville and all the other stuff you do when you're down there. And I got to stand literally in the masters. So I'm a former English major and mass communications guy, right? So I stood literally at the doorstep of the studio that Ernest Hemingway wrote. I could see the typewriter and I can remember it as vivid today as it was when I stood there. I got to see the CD sat in and the typewriter he typed Old Man in the Sea and all the other you know, amazing works that he did. And I got to introduce that to my girls and my wife couldn't be cared less. She's an accountant, so her brain doesn't work like mine, but it was really cool. And I'll remember that forever, right? Do I remember the thrill of hitting that S curve at hundred miles an hour? Yes. Do I have some regret? Yes. Cause I had little kids and I was being an idiot, but I don't ever regret the things that I do. I do regret some of the things I've bought for sure. I want to clarify, you built up your portfolio. Did you do that completely bootstrap or did you have partners? The first seven plus years, I bootstrapped. Okay. So I would get a commission check and I would buy, I bought the first property on Clark Street in East Hartford, hence the name, off of a commission that I got. And I took that commission and bought the place. And then subsequent bonuses and commissions would pay for funding down payments on flips. And then I would flip a couple houses, make the 20, 30, 40 plus grand on each of them. And then I'd take that 80 grand and go buy another multi with it. And rinse and repeat. So yeah, came out of my back pocket. A straight Robert Kiyosaki style. See, so selling copiers, getting commission checks and putting it to work, man. Straight out of the book that read in 2008 worked for you. Yeah. I'm too tall to fly planes. So I had to actually go sell software instead. Right. <laughs> Tell me about your strategy. Now you guys a syndication, you've got partners. How do you typically operate? What kind of value add deals are you looking for? So it's kind of transitioning. Time was, and if you see me on social media, you'd see me talk about the fact that I buy crappy apartment buildings from landlords who basically suck at their jobs. And we go in, we make those buildings clean and safe. We upgrade them. We treat the residents like customers. And that means that we answer calls and we treat them with respect. And we, yes, sir, and no, ma'am, them to death and say, thank you. And please and uh, actually do what we say we're going to do. That business is changing because as we are selling off those C-class buildings, which are far better than the day I found them, we're moving towards kind of two directions. One is we're getting into development here in Connecticut. There's an affordable housing bent to that. And then down in the Carolinas, we're looking for value add, but B-class. So it's more management intensive rather than physically upgrading and fixing, but I'm okay with buying buildings that are beat up too, because Clint, you kind of touched on this earlier. It was one of the cool things I learned about when I was flipping was that pretty much anything except functional obsolescence, pretty much anything can be fixed. And so it made me somewhat fearless, but I am also very confident in our team's ability to manage the living daylights out of a project from a construction perspective, as well as from a property management perspective. So over the last two years or so, we've started raising money first with friends and family and then with a friends and family. And now we've extended that more. We're launching a fund. What By the time this recording is live, we'll have announced a debt fund that we're launching in a few days and we continue to syndicate. So I have partners. We probably have 50, 55 high net worth folks that we work with on any given project. And we are focused on, you know, like I said, B-class 
down in the Carolinas, developing a class here in Connecticut. And that's kind of the next layer of growth for us. So the market, your footprint is Eastern seaboard, sort of Connecticut all the way down to the Carolinas, or are you focusing in on the Carolinas? No, I'm focused on the Carolinas and Connecticut. So I have a profound case of entrepreneurial ADD. And so shiny object syndrome all over the place. Originally, my idea was we'll look in Kentucky and North Carolina and South Carolina and Indiana and Ohio. And when we find something, we will plant a flag. And what I realized is that if I'm scattering our efforts across all of those places, I'm not finding anything because I'm not spending enough time with the brokers and the wholesalers and the property managers that I really need to build tight relationships with. And so instead, we focused on because my life seems to be moving towards North Carolina, that's where we're focused for now. And I make at least one offer a day on properties. And when we find one, we'll plant a flag around it, whether that's Asheville or Fayetteville or Raleigh or Charlotte. And when we find one, then we'll plant a flag and build around that in that submarket. But I'm definitely focused on North Carolina. The reason that I'm focused on Connecticut is that I think there's a tremendous opportunity here in the state of Connecticut. It's a problem that I would imagine most states have, and that is affordable housing units. So Connecticut is about 30,000 affordable units behind where they need to be in 2030, because in 2008, when the Great Recession happened, half of the general contractors went out of business and did something else for a living, and they never came back. And so that created a dearth of construction projects over the last 15, 20 years that has really left Connecticut in a lurch. And so they've created this program called 830G, where if you buy land in a residential area, you can override the local zoning uh, and buy a farm. And instead of putting, you know, chopping it up into lots and building single families, you can actually put multifamily in there because the state will come in as long as you adhere to their program. And they will allow you to override and build multifamily in those same lots. You have to adhere to the safety codes. And one of the interesting things is the largest fire engine in the town has to be able to do a K-turn in your parking lot, who we thought. So that's easy. That's just asphalt. And the last piece is you have to put on the deed that 30% of the units are for some level of affordable housing, whether that's you know a workman's level all the way down to section eight, you've got to come up with 30% of the housing needs to be affordable for, I believe it's 40 years. And so the way to do that is to build a whole bunch of units and the break even on that is probably about 50. And so we're buying land right now. And I've got a project actually not too far from this office where we are going to buy 58 acres and put at least 80 units in there, possibly a whole lot more, depending on what the town and the state allows us to do. And I see that opportunity all over the state. And so one of the things that I pride that we take pride in here at Clark Street is all of our tenants are range from really hardworking middle-class families to working poor who are working two, three jobs just to make ends meet. I respect the hell out of them. And because I was the child of one of those people 40 years ago, and you know, I watched my mom work two jobs and in some cases, three jobs to make ends meet. And so when I started to do this, it didn't occur to me at the time, but I realized it kind of connected in my head that I've been that kid. And so I feel a a responsibility to treat those folks because, you know, they're good, hardworking people and they are doing their best to make ends meet. And so my job in that relationship is to provide a building that is clean, safe, 
well-appointed so that they can be proud to live there. Turns out that it's really good business when folks enjoy where they live because they stay a lot longer, which saves us money on turns and lease-ups and all those things. And who would have thought, but it actually makes my buildings more valuable when we do the right thing by our residents and they're happy. And I know they're happy because I see the results and references on Yelp and other places. The other thing that is really interesting about that is that when they do move, a couple gets married or have a child and they want to go live someplace by a house, for instance, I know that the tenants, my future residents live within a mile, mile and a half of the building. And so we create brands around those buildings so that they are well-known as very well-run, professionally, responsibly run, so that when vacancies do happen, our email explodes. And in fact, in a lot of cases, we have wait lists for our buildings. So even when we lose residents, we're able to rehab the unit, get it you know, where it needs to be, and lease it back up in a matter of a couple of weeks. So our vacancy rates are really, really strong. It's good business. I like sleeping well at night too. Great stuff. Ed, we're running short on time, but I wanted to ask you before we go is what does this look like for the passive investors that are coming into your fund? So I love the concept of truly passive and passive investing. And I thought that when I was getting into this business that I was going to be the passive investor. Not the case. And I see you two smiling, you know, like I do. But the fact is, is that we're able to provide opportunities for really busy accredited investors to own real estate without having to be the landlord, right? Because that part of this is hard. It's less hard when you have systems in place like we do, but it's still difficult. And so our job here is to provide really good returns and keep their money safe while they do what they do, the doctoring and the lawyering and the running software companies and all that. And you know, we do what we love, which is buying crappy apartment buildings or buying buildings that need to be managed more effectively and doing a really good job of that and providing a really good return for our investors and also doing right by our residents. And so far, so good. Well, Ed, this has been such a great conversation. If any of our listeners want to reach out to you and find out more about what you're about and what's going on at Clark Street Capital, what would be the best way for them to do that? So I would offer two ways. One is they can listen to our radio or our podcast, The Real Estate Underground. We're talking just like this, where I get together with professionals. And the really cool thing, and Clinton, you hit on this earlier, the really cool thing about having a podcast is that I meet some really interesting, very successful, smart people who are happy to come on my podcast. But if I cold called them, they might not return my call. So having the podcast is a great way to learn. And so I approach the interviews as if it's classes is in session and I'm asking questions about, you know, how do you do this and how do you think about that? And what do you do here and all that? So it tends to be a pretty educational process. If you want to learn about the Clark Street specifically, you can hit us up on any social media channels. I'm Ed Matthews or Ed Matthews 4 everywhere. And we're Clark Street Capital everywhere. You can always hit our website to clarkst.com. Very good. Well, thanks, man. It's been great talking with you. I am easy to find. Thank you. I really appreciate your perspective and thanks for your willingness to share. Thanks a lot. Thank you so much for listening and watching the Truly Passive Income podcast. If you liked the show, if you think it would be useful for someone else, the greatest compliment that you could give us would be to share the episode, leave a comment down below, or leave us an honest review. If you have any questions, don't hesitate to let us know down below. And remember, with Truly Passive Income comes freedom of time, place, and the freedom to pursue your higher purpose.